This episode is sponsored by the International Sports and Music Project, also known as ISMP. ISMP is a 501c3 nonprofit whose purpose is to increase access to sports, art, and music programming in shelters, refugee camps, orphanages, and vulnerable communities throughout the world as a means of bolstering positive mental health. The organization is active in Rwanda, Uganda, Micronesia, Greece, and New York City. On this episode, we have Scott Farber. Scott is a serial entrepreneur who comes from a lineage of educators. He attended Harvard on scholarship, and he and his partner self-funded an education services company called A-List. Their mission was to level the playing field, a motto that has served Scott in subsequent endeavors. Scott, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. It's great to be here, Asim. Thanks so much for having me. It's my great pleasure. Um, I've actually been really looking forward to this conversation because you and I are about the same age and we've had similar experiences and uh, trials and tribulations and successes being an entrepreneur. So I feel like I can identify with a lot of uh, what you're about to share. It's kind of you to say, I mean, uh, to mention the successes uh, in the same breath without mentioning the many failures uh, might be to tell only part of the story. Uh, at least for the ledger right now, there seem to be more successes than failures, but it's definitely not all one-sided. <laughs> Well, hopefully we can maintain that balance as we continue sure. forward. That's always the, uh, the objective and the, uh, the challenge for sure. Agreed. Scott, let's go back a, a little bit. Growing up, um, so bring me to um, making it to Pennsylvania. Sure, absolutely. So uh, I was born in the Bronx, uh, grew up in and around New York City, uh, spent my uh, childhood uh, uh, on Long Island. And uh, when I was in high school, my dad, who had been a serial entrepreneur throughout his life, and I think probably responsible for the early attraction I had to making my own hours, dreaming really big, uh, he tried to buy a minor league baseball team um, and then wound up buying a minor league basketball team. And to be a teenage boy and to have a dad out there uh, trying to buy a professional sports team was probably about the most exciting thing that you could imagine. So I moved to Pennsylvania at the age of 16, which might be in and of itself a bit traumatic to move in high school, but I got to move as the owner's son in a new town. So I could hang out with the players, the cheerleaders, go down to the court, give away tickets, give away t-shirts. It was amazing. And then the team went bankrupt in six months and it was not quite as amazing anymore. Um, uh, but uh, it definitely did set the stage for me to kind of imagine what was possible. Um, and I, I really give my dad a tremendous amount of credit because the manic energy that is required to be an entrepreneur, um, uh, the instability and uncertainty that you have to tolerate as an entrepreneur um, is hard to convey to somebody for the first time. It's a lot easier to imagine yourself doing it if you lived it. Uh, so, you know, got to Pennsylvania, completely had a turnaround uh, in our family circumstances, but thankfully I had two parents that kicked my butt at just the right time. So for me, I was also always passionate about experiences outside the traditional path. It'd be one thing to say that I did well in school. Sure, I, I got good grades. It'd be another thing to say that um, you know I had academic interests. I definitely did. Um, but I think it was the other pieces that really informed my approach and perspective is that at least the advice that I think entrepreneurs often hear is that be laser focused on one thing. And while I appreciate why that sentiment might make sense for some, it definitely didn't fit me. 
And I don't think it fits everybody. Yeah. I think there are a lot of entrepreneurs who are best served by incorporating and trying to integrate multiple perspectives and integrate multiple experiences. And I think Adam I, Grant wrote a compelling book about that where he used a number of case studies kind of debunking that myth. The originals. Um, I love originals. I think it's a fantastic book. I recommend it to all the young people that I mentor. Um, a lot of counterintuitive uh, case studies that exist there. Uh, but definitely early on in my life, the idea of uh, acquiring more experiences and letting that inform where I went uh, was, uh, I think, foundational to what I've become. Right. Um, are you an only child? I'm not. I have a sister that's a year younger. Uh, we probably took the natural course that most siblings have. We got along really well when we were little. We got along less well as we got older. And we have found each other again as we've matured and the sibling rivalry subsided into something more cooperative and loving. Um, and uh, thankfully, she lives not too far from me, so I get to see her quite a bit. Great, I got it. So you both found your way back to New York. Yeah, and actually, um, so I went to Harvard and she went to Wellesley. So even while we were in college, and both of us went on uh, substantial scholarships. Uh, so even when we were in college, we were sitting in the similar economic situation of not having the same money as many of our friends, very grateful for our academic advantages and definitely very grateful for the uh, universities that accepted us. And what types of companies did your dad operate or found as you were growing up? Um, uh, both my parents had their roots professionally in education, uh, which I think went a long way towards shaping my view on why I thought I could have an impact in education. Um, uh, but when my dad was involved in professional uh, endeavors, there was real estate, there was an airline, there was um, a baseball team, a basketball team. There were a lot of different pieces. He used to run the fantasy camps for the New York Knicks um, and uh, down in Atlantic City with Dick Barnett, and Earl Monroe, and Walt Frazier. So there was always something new and exciting about what he was doing, but I don't think that I would say he fell into any one particular path. Um, it was more like he loved the building, which is, I think, really what I inherited. Got it. And so you mentioned that your parents were involved in education. Were they both teachers in their careers? Yeah. So uh, my mom was a teacher right up until she retired. Um, maybe about 10 years ago, seven, eight years ago. She still calls me sometimes early in the morning, uh, 6 a.m. and says, guess what I don't have to do today? Go to school. It's like, mom, seriously, really? That's where we're going with this? Um, but uh, high school art teacher, um, and uh, my dad was a uh, social studies teacher in the South Bronx in uh, Fort Apache, uh, where my grandfather actually also taught before he became a principal at Rikers Island. Um, uh, if you go up the family trees in both directions, lots and lots of teachers. Uh, my dad was in a principal and a superintendent before he went into business, but I definitely grew up with a, um, an emphasis on the value of education. Um, you go back three generations and we weren't Americans. So that immigrant experience certainly infused my upbringing. This is what you can make of yourself if, and only if you apply yourself. So I think that that was certainly very helpful. That's um, fantastic. But I would just say, you know, related to that, their perspectives on education were also relentlessly self-improving. And I think that's a little different than sometimes when I engage in educational conversations, the focus is on how great my kids do or how great this institution is. But I grew up with two parents who you know, were products of the 60s, uh, were uh, strong advocates for civil rights, and looked at education not as a privilege, but as a fundamental human right. And I think that really did push me uh, to focus on leveling the playing field. And A-List Education, my first company, uh, has and still has as its core mission, leveling the playing field for higher education. 
That's fantastic. Um, let's chat a little bit about your time in Ecuador. Sure. That happened shortly after college. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, for those people that are a little unfamiliar with the recruiting process on campus at certain, certain universities, many of the biggest, most powerful Fortune 500 companies, investment banks, management consulting companies will come and recruit you as a senior. So while my friends went through the recruiting process, I was oblivious to what I was supposed to do. Um, I went and had some free shrimp, um, probably had a couple of free drinks, but finding the job was never the point for the recruiting process for me. Um, and I would say that was probably a reflection of just the uncertainty I had as to what I was supposed to do next. Uh, but my best friend, uh, still my best friend, we met freshman year of college, uh, he was a Hispanic studies major, and we had talked uh, in our senior year about the importance of taking what for high school students might be a gap year, um, but really before you dive into work, uh, getting a broader range of experiences. And I think that that's really been a through line for a lot of my life. How do I add perspective? So we started in Ecuador working for uh, Mickey Hart of the Grateful Dead uh, had a nonprofit called Planet Drum. And we went down to work for Planet Drum on a reforestation project. They basically handed two 22-year-old idiots machetes and basically said, you're going to go chop down a bunch of stuff, you're going to create pathways, and you are going to replant the hillside because there were these massive landslides that had been triggered by El Nino flooding just before. So in this small little town called Bahia de Caracas, uh, it's about two hours north of Guayaquil on the Pacific coast of Ecuador. Um, we were in this small town and we were doing this project, but very early on in our tenure, the uh, government of uh, the UK, the British consulate, allocated money for a development project, but they wouldn't just write a check to the town. They had to write it to another nonprofit. Now, there was no, no one else in the town. So my buddy and I got called to Quito to go meet with the ambassador and the British consulate wrote a check for a uh, environmental development project and we had no clue what we were doing. Uh, but that was probably the first time that I also started to appreciate how education could have an impact outside of the four walls of a classroom. I think a lot of us think of education as what can you cram into your brain before a test? And I understand that because measuring outcomes are often what was your GPA. But that's not really what education's about. It's how do you learn and acquire a set of skills that you can apply after you spend time with the person or however you learn them. It's that applicability over time that's meaningful impact and it makes it sustainable. So we were supposed to build a community garden. And in the end, the town didn't have available farmland to give us. So we had this money to spend, impact to make, and we had to come up with a new plan of action. And in the end, what we did, because there was not really a functioning trash system for part of the town, we created an organic recycling project. Um, we then used that organic recycling on uh, that organic matter to feed to worms that created fertilizer, which we then sold as packaged organic fertilizer to local farms. Mm -hmm. So my first entrepreneurial project that I would consider to be of substance was essentially serving as the CFO of a government funded pot project that I didn't know anything about. But apparently with some ingenuity, with a partner in crime, and with a group of people who are willing to give us the benefit of the doubt, we could build something that lasted. Uh, when I speak to a lot of young people, I often say my three rules of success are ambition, failure, and commitment. Right. If you don't dare to dream big, there's really nothing special you're going to ever create. There's a lot of ambition that went into trying to create a project in the middle of nowhere that we had no clue what we were doing. Sure. But if you think ambition will carry you the whole way, you are grossly misinformed. Failure is part of the process. 
And I feel like when I was younger, I didn't really appreciate how failure served a teachable moment. Failure was a loss to me, as opposed to everything is still an opportunity to learn. So failure should be part of anybody's plan. It's that third step, it's commitment that ultimately I think separates the winners from the losers. If you're willing to trip, fall, and dust yourself off, you can keep running. If you're going to sit on the ground and basically look around and be complaining about the world, it's kind of hard to see where your success is going to come from. That's really so well said. Thank you for that. I want to go back to uh, a comment you made about our education system, and it feels like it's predominantly driven to call out those who would be good at rules-based professions, which is sort of, I think about like medicine, law, accounting. Here is a body of facts. Can you absorb them, interpret them, and be able to apply them? And so there's so much of that. I mean, when you talked about like memorizing a body of facts before a test, that's what it feels like. But the more permanent uh, fundamentals of education and, and what can really um, have a long lasting impact and serve you in any area are those critical reasoning skills, learning how to think, learning how to solve problems. And so did that have a lot to do with uh, A-list tutoring? I, I think um, you know you hit on something super important, and um, it's a good segue. The first business that I started, uh, I'd spent a couple of years after coming back from South America working for a test prep company. And I just kind of felt that having spent a lot of time in school, having done pretty well, and looking at this sort of model and realizing as an older person how outdated that structure seemed, I'm going to stand in front of the room and I'm just going to fire off a bunch of things and you're going to try and remember them. Not the test itself, it's to use your words, the critical reasoning skills. If my students go through a class and they get an A in English, they think somehow that translates to mastering and scoring an 800 or the 99th percentile on the SAT. And those two things are not exactly apples to apples. They're different. So as I took a look at what was happening in, uh, we'll call it secondary education, and that transition to higher ed, I realized that there was this pipeline problem of what were we really teaching and what does the data tell us about how successful that is? You mentioned a couple of careers, which I think are often shorthand for mastering facts, lawyer, doctor. But if we take a step back for a second and we just kind of look at what happens at the intersection between high school and college, you hear a couple of, I think, very compelling stats that I'd like to share. We only get about 52 to 54% of students graduating from a four-year university within six years. What's the disconnect? Well, if all you did was learn to memorize for a test, and now you're walking into a lecture class that's a little bit less formal, a little less structured, um, a bit more expansive in what we're expecting of young people, not surprisingly, many of them struggle. But I think one of the big disconnects is the two different types of learning that you find in high school versus what you find in university. And so one of the early uh, value propositions that we hope to bring from A-List was that we didn't just teach to a test. We were going to teach you how to think. The expectations that we have seldom coincide with the realities that we're given. It's a great set of stats. I was working on a workforce development project. I was meeting with a professor from Ohio State that specializes at the business school in workforce. We were down in D.C. at a conference, and he shared this stat that something like 80% of parents, students, high school educators think that their young people are ready to move on to higher education. Fewer than 30% of professors that have those kids in their class 
think those kids are ready to be in their class. And yet you get a same scenario where 80% of parents, students, and college educators think their young people are ready for the workforce and fewer than 30% of employers think the people that are coming to apply are ready for the job. So what we do is we say, we're doing a great job, but as soon as we ask an outside group, are we doing a great job? They say no, and yet we don't change what we do. It is such an insane juxtaposition of, I'm great, I've handed this person to you, you say this person is not great, and I take no teachable moment back? Amazing. Wow. Thanks for going through that. Sure. Scott, um, you know, it's clear that um, you were very driven by wanting to make as big an impact possible. Um, I'm just curious, um, why tutoring? Uh, did you think about maybe um, like uh, going into getting a law degree or a doctorate and doing something with the Department of Education that would have been more systemic? You know, it's an interesting question, and um, uh, I'll answer it in two different ways. Um, one, while tutoring is where we started, it was never where we planned to go. Part of that was actually, you know, a pretty useful takeaway for entrepreneurs. The way that we got started, I was working for an education company. The pitch that I had made to my boss at the time is I thought we should focus more on working directly with institutions to build institutional capacity and working with nonprofits and working with schools. Now, both of which are exceptionally difficult. But they are an opportunity for bigger systemic impact than, say, tutoring on its own would be. So while we started with tutoring, it was because it required no money out of the gate. So I think sometimes, and I certainly hear this from young people now that I work with, um, that there's this sense of the first thing you need to go do is raise money. Um, That is not the case. We bootstrapped the business from day one. And part of the investment proposition we had for each other is that we were arriving with a set of skills that could become revenue positive out of the gate because we had experience in the industry already. And I think that sequence gave us a better and stronger foundation than many of the conversations that I have with us other aspiring entrepreneurs. You know, Scott, I'm gonna need to go raise 10 million bucks. He's like, really? How are you gonna raise 10 million bucks? Well, I think I have a really great idea. And as many people point out, you could be full of ideas. That does not mean that you actually can make any of them work. So um, I think that we looked at tutoring as a way to get started. I think we came up with a really creative financing approach. Uh, We basically used our early clients as bridge financing for the business. So we sold packages upfront as opposed to going to the traditional hourly wage, which allowed us to amass kind of a capital infusion, which we could then use to fund our operations. Uh, So we didn't. Yeah, we didn't take external money from other investors ever. The business is uh, still 100% owned by the partners. Um, We did take an SBA loan uh, at various points, but uh, we never raised outside capital. And I'm really proud of that. I love that. Um, That's fantastic. Kudos on that. But that systemic impact question is one that I wouldn't have gone into um, A-list Um, and led that as a plan of action if I thought that we weren't going to be able to get to that higher impact level. I would say that from the pursuing additional education, uh, I do think that there might be an interest in an MBA or JD at some point, um, just because I still do love learning. You very successfully caught the eye of some overseas um, enthusiasts, and Mm -hmm. um, they asked you to come over and help them with their education programs. Tell us about that. Sure. So um, international education, I had always been fascinated by. Um, uh, but my uh, the same partner that I mentioned that I was in Ecuador with, uh, he was an early partner in the founding of A-List. Uh, he's originally from the UK. Uh, so he founded A-List UK there. So our first international site was in the UK. And 
often the question that we get is, why do they care about things like American universities? And there are many international students that obviously come and study in the US. Uh, from there, we opened in Switzerland and then the UAE uh, and then China. And we've got projects probably in almost 20 different countries, Thailand, Haiti, um, you know, fill in the blank. We're in a lot of different places. Um, I look at them also as interesting opportunities to find solutions that might not already be on the table. And I'll give you an example. In Bahrain, uh, there's a partnership that we've formed with the Royal University for Women uh, to bring an educational leadership program, uh, certification program with SUNY uh, delivered on site in Bahrain uh, with a regional focus to train international school leaders. That's the type of program that you couldn't have 15 years ago said A-List will one day be part of delivering a program like that. But because of the time that I spend in the Gulf region, the number of conversations we've had where expats are often the school leaders for international schools, wouldn't it be great if we were able to develop some more homegrown talent? Wouldn't it be great uh, if we were able to give that perspective to many people, not just one at a time as they traveled overseas, but in their backyard, then we could come up with a solution. That's fantastic. Really appreciate uh, your sharing that, Scott. And again, kudos. It's a testament to the success you've had and the great work you're doing. And I, I agree that uh, A-List ended up proving the be, to be the best platform for you to uh, impact the most number of people. Scott, you have been um, uh, very candid with me in the past, and that's, uh, I really appreciate that. It certainly is a strong basis of our relationship. Mm -hmm. um, I'd love for you to go back to the time when you had a mentor who encouraged you to l look at yourself um, uh, and, and kind of uh, w with sort of a, a microscopic lens and, and even apply a surgical scalpel to, to draw on some <laughs> acneed medical metaphors. Um, but it also coincided with uh, the loss of uh, several friends. And yeah. so take us back to that moment. A absolutely. And um, I think candor is, uh, is, the, is, is what needs to rule this response. Um, there are lots of moments, I think, in all of our lives that are challenging. And I think far too often we try and face those challenges alone, uh, usually with less than ideal outcomes. I uh, had tried to put together a pretty large deal uh, at the beginning of 2017 that involved um, acquiring some other companies. And I thought that it was totally done and I thought I had achieved this really, really brilliant thing. And it turns out that was not the case. And the deal that I was looking at was not the deal that I had in my head. And as often the time um, uh, when you realize that uh, your perception of reality isn't the same thing as everyone else's perception of reality. And so the deal didn't happen. I got advice at the time that sometimes the best deals you do are the deals you don't. And so we had to walk away from something that I was really excited about. And in the years before, in the two years before, um, I'd lost probably about six close friends. In looking at those losses, um, I felt that I just needed to work harder. I just had to put my head down and keep running. Um, but what I wasn't doing was taking stock of, well, what am I missing? because of how I'm spending my time. What friends haven't I been connecting with? What health matters have I not been paying attention to? And so I went to a dinner with a mentor of mine. I told her all about everything that I was up to. And I was talking a mile a minute and discussing brand new business ventures. And she interrupted me and she's like, Scott, you need to shut the hell up. Um, stop me in my tracks. And I didn't really understand what she was getting at. 
but she very quickly pointed out that there were important life lessons that I seemed to be missing and that now is probably as good a time as any for her to bring them to my attention. She said, number one, bigger is not better. Number two, more doesn't mean you're winning. Number three, you're not nearly as successful as you think you are. Number four, I don't think you're happy. And number five, you look like crap. Now, when somebody you know, love, and respect sits across the table from you and point by point just breaks you down, um, all I can say is that I am blessed that I was open and vulnerable in that moment to hearing what she had to say. I think that if somebody comes up to you and says those same things, it's pretty easy to let your ego get bruised and essentially walk away from what can be very, very valuable advice, engagement, love, compassion. And the advice that she gave me when she finished breaking that down was that I needed to step down and move away from my job. I needed to do something different. And I think there's probably a moment in all of our lives where somebody tells us something that we didn't want to hear. Um, uh, we're not sure what the future brings, but it may be time to jump off the cliff. And uh, if she hadn't intervened at that time uh, and hadn't pushed me down a new path, there are a whole bunch of other changes in my life that never would have happened. Um, from that point on, I um, stepped down as a CEO of, of A-List. Uh, that all happened that week. And in the weeks that followed, she gave me an assignment and she said, I need you to spend every single day meeting somebody in your life that has a job that you don't fully understand. This is your first 30 days of your sabbatical. And by the time I finished that month, uh, I had met a guy uh, who was buying psychiatry practices as a way to be able to provide greater substance abuse support, greater support for acute depression. And uh, I became the COO of a mental health care company. Uh, we grew 1,000% in the 12 months uh, that I sat in the chair. And ultimately, it led me to form my own company. That's Mental Health Partnership. It's what I run now. Uh, we now have uh, three clinics in central Iowa, serve uh, about 3,000 active patients, about 30 providers. And that focus on mental health care and what I'll call a leveling the playing field for access to mental health care is something that seems consistent for my days in education, uh, which I'm still involved in, and in my days in mental health care. It's how do we make this seem a little bit fairer for people to be their best and truest selves? And I wouldn't have been able to, you know, fearlessly search my own life to identify places to improve if I hadn't had a mentor basically punch me in the face. And it just brings me back to the idea you can't do this alone. Yeah. Um, there's a great quote from uh, Dr. King. It's in one of his sermons entitled Ingratitude. And he writes, ingratitude is the greatest of all sins because the sinner fails to recognize his dependence on others. I think that if I did not have gratitude, I would be sinning against all of those people who have helped me get to where I am. Um, and so gratitude stays front and center for me every day. That's fantastic, Scott. Thank you so much for that. Uh, appreciate the courage in uh, giving us such a in-depth share. Um, that spirit of entrepreneurship and wanting to share that message with others, which has been your complete and total tenor in our conversation today, which is really appreciated. Because it's very much, uh, it's, it's an important part of what uh, this podcast series is hoping to achieve. It, it wants to inspire others. Tell us about the International Sports and Music Project. Uh, so uh, nonprofits are definitely in my blood. So I certainly spend a good amount of time trying to be of service. Uh, I think that I recognize, um, maybe recognized in college, I'll give myself a little credit. It was a moment my senior year, um, I was sitting on my ex-girlfriend's couch and everyone was talking about what they wanted to achieve or do in life. And a lot of people were talking about wanting to be famous. 
And I remember being struck by the image that at some point there was a guy that invented the wheel. And I'm sure he was super famous. Like, dude, you hear about Tok Tok in the next town? He's got this round thing. It's so cool. It moves stuff around. Dude, nobody knows who Tok Tok is now. So that, that idea of being famous, that never really appealed to me. Uh, that always seemed to be a, a, a worthless pursuit. And the service piece, even going back to, to college and high school, I was always volunteering in lots of organizations. Um, in my current roles, I sit on the board of a group called the Little Wish Foundation that focuses on pediatric cancer. Um, uh, we deliver little wishes to uh, young people in a hospital going through treatment in coordination with a pediatric oncologist um, and in coordination with a social worker as a way to be able to provide positivity during courses of treatment. And uh, the other board that I sit on is the International Sports and Music Project that you just shared about. Uh, that organization is focused on delivering music and art programs and sport programs uh, to refugees and young people around the world. So there are programs running for Syrian refugees in Greece, uh, for uh, schools and orphanages in Rwanda and Uganda and Micronesia. We also work with uh, homeless youth in New York City um, and ISMP and uh, Little Wish Foundation. Are, uh, are two organizations that I believe are really, really worth my time. And I kind of, I was looking at my calendar just before uh, I was moving between phone calls. And uh, there are four different companies uh, that I currently serve in an executive role for or sit on the boards with uh, for uh, two nonprofits. And yet I look at my week and when I was just running A-List, that was seven days a week, 100 hours a week. I now have seven days of things to do but none of it approaches what I was doing before. And that's not because I don't want to spend time or try it work hard. Um, it's just that you don't have to burn the candle on both ends. Um, and you don't have to try and jam every possible thing into every spare minute of space. I have discovered the value of having free time, even just to free think. That's fantastic. Scott, this has been such an amazing conversation, very illuminating, and um, you just have been so uh, generous and gregarious in your, your giving. Um, uh, every comment you've made has been, uh, you know, you, you highlight um, the, the giving aspect, the, the takeaways, the nuggets. How could this be helpful to the audience or the person listening or the person receiving mm -hmm. it? And so I really appreciate that. It speaks volumes of how you are as a person. It's really kind of you to say, Asim. I think uh, the reason that we connected so quickly was because we have that shared energy. And I think one of the first things that we talked about was Adam Grant's book, Give and Take, and how Give and Take really does form a cornerstone of both of our investing professional personal philosophies. Uh, so I, I got to tell you, this has been fantastic for me as well. I appreciate the opportunity to be able to share the story and I hope that it has some resonance for uh, people listening. Thank you so much again. I'm sure it will. Achieve is recorded at Subtractive in Hangar 8 at the Santa Monica Airport. Music is produced by Hennedy.